0: All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 6, Isaiah uh, chapter 6. We are not in um, uh, any kind of a, a series or one particular book of the Bible as we typically preach through books of the Bible. This is kind of how summer goes um, here at Redeemer. So we're going to be in Isaiah 6. However, this will connect to and be in, in the similar um, vein of thought. If you were here last week and heard um, Scotty Friesen uh, preach, we're going to be In Isaiah chapter 6, that's Old Testament, one of the most famous prophets and one of the most, I would say, kind of uh, famous passages um, in the Bible. Um, All right, Mount Everest. Has anybody here climbed Mount Everest? Okay, didn't think so. All right, um, Mount Everest. Mount Everest is one of the uh, earth's highest mountains above sea level. It's on the... Um, China-Nepal border. Um, It is close to 30,000 feet, 29,031 feet at their last measurement, however you measure a mountain. Um, It is so grand, so high, so overwhelming. It has brought thousands uh, of climbers who've attempted to peak it. I'm sure at this point we're at Thousands have uh, peaked it. Um, nowadays, there's about an eight-week uh, window that you can peak Mount Everest every year. Outside of that eight-week window, you cannot climb it. Um, it, will, it will kill you. And there are traffic jams on the mountain uh, nowadays because so many people are drawn to try to peak and climb Mount Everest. It comes at great cost. It costs something like $70,000 uh, to peak Mount Everest. Um, that, that's, that's generally, on average, what it's going to cost you. I'm sure it could potentially cost a lot more. It's about a 10-week training process, but really, um, it's much longer than that. One uh, climber who peaked it, Patrick Hollingworth, said it was really, for him, a 10-year process of learning to climb, of climbing other big mountains as he really um, had his uh, goals fixed on one day peaking Mount Everest. He said it, it was really a 10-year process. and Even when you're done they say that it takes months to recuperate physically um, and mentally. Besides that, besides uh, the, the cost of your money and time and all these things, ultimately, um, you're risking your life to climb Mount Everest, primarily because of its, its height. Um, the further up you get, pressure goes down, your oxygen uh, intake goes down. I think close to the summit, you're around a quarter of the oxygen um, that, that we're breathing here today. Your mental acuity goes down to about 20%. Um, in his uh, talk, Patrick Hollingworth talks about, uh, on, on his uh, talking about how he peaked Everest, he, he says, if we were to just go to the peak of Mount Everest right now, um, we would be dead very quickly. Our bodies aren't acclimated, we'd be gasping for air, and very quickly, um, we would, we'd be dead. Uh, today, there are about 100 dead bodies on Mount Everest, That they can't get down. It's that that overwhelming. It's that dangerous. Two people have already died this year trying to climb uh, Mount Everest. Uh, Even if you make it to the top, even if you peak Mount Everest, there's only a short window of time that you have to be able to stand on the peak, take a couple pictures, and then immediately start um, trekking uh, uh, down. And even then, you still have to make it down uh, it, it's something to, to get down to like relative safety still takes hours and hours of climbing to get off of the peak. This is how Patrick Collingworth, again, someone who climbed and peaked Everest, talked about peaking Everest and standing on the peak. He says, it's quite an unnerving feeling being on the summit of Everest. You certainly don't sit down and relax. You know that you've only got the job half done. It's like there, there's a doorway to the rest of your life in safety. And if you don't get back through that doorway before it closes, it's going to slam shut on you and you'll be stuck up there for good. So it's almost a feeling of living on borrowed time. That's what he says the feeling of being on the peak of Everest is. It's not this, it's exciting sure, but the excitement is almost drowned out by the sense of death, by the sense of if we stay here too long, I mean, and too long meaning like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, uh, it's like borrowed time. The door's gonna slam shut and we might get stuck up here. I think how the locals call Mount Everest really encapsulates and summarizes the allure of it. The locals call Mount Everest the holy peak. It's one of their names for it, or the holy mountain. Uh, They call it holy. They revere the mountain in all of its grandeur and glory and bigness and how overwhelming it is. They revere it as as holy. When Patrick Hollingworth once looked at Mount Everest as he was training on another mountain, he said it was so beautiful. He said there, there must have been angels singing at that moment. I mean, when, they look, when, P, when these climbers look at Mount Everest, they go, this is like this, it's like religious to them almost. It's holy. I think there's angels up there uh, singing. So why do we climb Mount Everest? Why do so many people climb Mount Everest, risking their life, giving their life uh, to it? I think we could say it like this. uh, Because we are created to experience the holy. We are created to experience holiness. And so we climb Mount Everest. And that is what we see unfold in Isaiah 6. So, If you would, please stand with me, and let's read Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 8 together. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Uh, This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Father, we pray that you would speak to us in your word, that you would reveal your holiness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in reading that text, we have witnessed someone experiencing the peak. We are are reading about someone who is uh, peaking. They have... Um, they're having a profound experience with the holy. They're having a profound experience with holiness. And what we're going to do in this text, we're going to work backwards. We're going to start on the peak. We're not going to start at base camp. We're going to work backwards. We're going to start at the experience of what Isaiah is experiencing, what he's feeling, why he's saying what he's saying. And then we're going to go backwards to what is driving all of it, what led him there. And here's our reference point, verse one. Here's our reference point just to be able to start. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, this is the key, I saw the Lord. Biblically speaking, this is the peak. Biblically speaking, for someone to say, I saw God, is to say, I've stood on the peak of Mount Everest, okay? I have peaked. So we know that that is going on. Now skip to verse four. The first thing we are told in this sight of God, this vision of God, this experience with holiness is we're first told that the temple, impersonal materials, are overwhelmed by God. It says, verse 4, The foundations of the thresholds of the temple shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The, these impersonal materials, not people, just um, uh, created materials, are overwhelmed themselves at God in his presence, in his voice. He speaks and every, an earthquake happens. The temple starts thundering and shaking, and it fills with smoke. It's it's this mysterious, dark, I-can't-fully-see thing going on with smoke filling uh, the temple. And then we're told that Isaiah himself is totally and utterly overwhelmed standing on uh, this peak, if you will. Verse 5, And I said... Woe is me. What does that mean? What does it mean? This is kind of old school language, right? Most of you guys, you know, when your kids are disobeying and just causing a ruckus, you don't go, woe is me. right? What is this? What does woe is me mean? What is he talking about? He is pronouncing judgment and doom and darkness on himself. Woe is me. I am doomed. I am condemned under the judgment and sight of God. An example to understand the weight of this, Jesus said of Judas, Judas who betrayed Jesus, gave him over uh, to be executed and killed, completely betrayed him. Jesus said, Woe to that man. Isaiah here goes, I'm like Judas. Woe is me, I am doomed. The opposite of woe, the opposite of woe is me is is happy rejoicing under the blessing of God. That would be the opposite. Happy rejoicing under the blessing of God. This is is doom and darkness under condemnation. That is what Isaiah is having an overwhelming sense of and feeling of in this sight, It's as if Isaiah elaborated more, he would sound like Hollingworth. When Hollingworth talked about the experience of peaking Everest, Isaiah, if he elaborated more, might say it's quite an unnerving, disturbing feeling seeing God. Feels like I'm living on borrowed time. Seeing God. Isaiah is here gasping for air. Uh, knowing I might not make it out of this alive. Uh, John Calvin said this, uh, Isaiah was overpowered by the presence of God, so that like one who had lost his sense, he willingly plunged himself in darkness. Like one who despaired of life, he chose to die. Calvin actually says that, that Isaiah is so overwhelmed by the presence of God here, he forgets he's a prophet. That's why later when God says, who, who should I send? He goes, me, as though he's not already a prophet. So Calvin says, he forgets he's even a prophet. He's so overcome and overpowered by the presence of God. But why woe? Why doom? Look at verse five. He begins to unpack why he's pronouncing judgment on himself. He says, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost or i'm undone i am coming undone if you think about everyone has that experience you remember of being lost in like target or walmart as a kid you can't find your parents you remember that feeling of just your whole life being suspended in thin air like you have no past you have no future you don't know up from down it's just all over for you you just you don't you don't i don't remember my name i don't know anything other than i am lost I am undone in this moment. Nothing else matters. I feel like I'm crumbling into, into non-existence here. No security, no future, his whole existence being just suspended. It's just this sense of utter death. Decreation, he's lost. And he's lost because of what he says next. I am a man of unclean lips. Now, this this may sound weird to for him to go, I'm an unclean lips. Like, why are you choosing... Uh, lips. There's a couple different interpretations here. I think think the interpretation that's right is the most obvious. And it's that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. How do you know if a heart is unclean? Just listen to what comes out of it. Listen what passes through the lips. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. I am, my heart is unclean. I am unclean. Now, to feel the force of unclean, because that kind of sounds light to us, like unclean, okay? Um, To feel the force of that, in the New Testament, demons are called unclean spirits. Demons are said to be unclean, unworthy of God's presence. I am unclean. I am not permitted to be in God's presence. I am unworthy to be in God's presence. I'm unworthy to see him. It means that he is a guilty sinner. Those are the words that are later used in our passage guilt and sin. I am a guilty sinner before the presence of God. Woe is me. I am a guilty sinner. And not only that, he goes on, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Um, The woe here, the doom here just now, when he says I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, just extended to all of humanity. It just extended to you and me. Woe is me and woe is you. Doom, darkness, unclean, sinful, guilty, not worthy uh, to be in the presence of God, not permitted in, our pre- in His presence. Left to ourselves, left to ourselves, we are unclean uh, in the presence of God and before the presence of the Holy One. Unclean. Uh, We are guilty sinners, unworthy of the presence of God. His presence, his very presence in his holiness makes us want to die. That's what Isaiah is experiencing. Like crawl into darkness and die because of our uncleanness. Now, we already know this generally. and We're going to get into it specifically. But what causes this? We already generally know what's causing this. But he says it again. He says, for, in other words, I'm experiencing all this, feeling all of this, know all of this clearly, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. All of this is happening because I am seeing the Holy One. I am experiencing the Holy One. Seeing God makes us realize just how low and ultimately guilty and sinful we are, while thrilling, while thrilling, standing on the peak of Mount Everest makes people like Patrick Hollingworth and other people who peak it feel very, very small and fragile, like, I'm on borrowed time here. Um, Now, Isaiah's experience here is completely normal throughout all the Bible, this is not an abnormal experience for people who have, who have been near the presence of God, okay? Uh, Adam and Eve, I'll just give you a quick sampling. Adam and Eve, after the fall, they say, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. They go and hide. When Jacob wrestled with God, and you don't have to necessarily know these stories, but when Jacob wrestled with God, he said, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Somehow I peaked and I'm still alive. Kind of weird. At the scene of the Ten Commandments, when God's presence is there, there's thunder and lightning and smoke. And it says, the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look. And many of them perish. Don't let them come look because a lot of people will die. The people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us. And we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses, you can speak to God and then you can speak to us. Don't let God talk to us because it will overwhelm us and we will die. Uh, you want to know how King Uzziah died? It says, this is all in the year King Uzziah died. You want to know how he died? He grew proud to his destruction and he entered the temple of the Lord where God's presence was localized. He entered the presence of God to burn incense on the altar. Something he wasn't permitted to do, and the Lord struck him. And he was a leper to the day of his death. He approached the Holy One unlawfully. And he ended up dying. In the New Testament, just to get, well, maybe when Jesus gets here, it all changes. No. New Testament, Jesus, the Son of God, is called the Holy One of God. At the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' face shone like the sun, and God's voice was heard. And you wonder how the disciples responded? When the disciples heard this, quote, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Mark 4, when Jesus calms the storm, you know the famous passage, Jesus calms the storm. We love that story rightfully. You want to know how the disciples experienced that? When Jesus, have you ever seen a, a storm roll in? Brenna and I just got back from vacation. Every summer we go to Florida and we literally draw the storms in. We were there for Hurricane Sally. We were just there for Tropical Storm Claudette. If you want rain in Florida, send us. We will go, okay? Um, and we will draw it in. Have you ever seen a storm roll in? Of course you have Texans, right? Imagine, sometimes we think of like Jesus, I don't know, spoke to like a couple rain droplets. Imagine looking up at a thunder, a cloud, thousands of feet in the air, and it's just terrifying. And then, and then he just goes, stop. And then it all just disappears, Right? This is how the disciples uh, responded to that. They were filled with great fear. Who, who can speak to a storm? Whose presence am I in here? Right? Luke 5, uh, Jesus one time told Peter to go fish. After a day of fishing, they caught nothing. And Jesus was like, hey, go fish. And Peter was like, hey, so we are, we've been fishermen our whole life. We know how to fish. I don't know that you do we've been fishing all day, we haven't caught any fish, but sure, Jesus, we'll go fish, you know? And they get in the boat, boat and they go fish and they catch so much fish that all their nets start to break. And this is how they responded. When Simon Peter saw it, when he saw the catch of fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Get away from me. Woe is me in your presence the Holy One of God. It was a kind of astonishment that was crushing to sinful, guilty people. So what Isaiah is here experiencing is totally normal throughout the whole Bible. We have started with the experience of the peak. That's the experience Isaiah is having. It's it's overwhelming is an understatement. Profound is an understatement. It is utterly all-consuming and crushing. Now let's work backwards. What did he see? What did he see that brought this about? Verse one, let's, let's look at it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. In the year that their king died, and with him probably a sense of hope and security and future that the king can bring about, a good king, a powerful king can bring about. In the year that he died, Isaiah saw the real king that death can't touch. He saw the real king on the real throne, the king who rules all the kings. Who rules that king? Who's higher than him? No one down here. He saw the king that rules the kings. He saw the Lord that rules the Lord sitting on his throne, happy, healthy, nothing can touch him, especially not death. And he sees him continuing on high and lifted up. Other kings are of the dust. From dust they come and to dust they return. But this king that Isaiah sees is higher and lifted up. While the kings of the earth look down on all of uh, the nations and the people, this king looks down to be able to see what's going on down here. To be able to see the other kings. To be able to see the other uh, lords, He's high and lifted up, and he goes on, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He is adorned in extravagance, and it's as if Isaiah is like, man, the floor of this temple looks so kind of wavy and soft and beautiful. What in the world is that? And then he gets to the walls, and it's kind of like, what is going on? And then he realizes that's his robe. It fills the entire temple. God is seated on his throne, and verse 2 above him stood the seraphim. Seraphim means flames. There's all sorts of ideas of what this means, but um, these are like these fiery angels. Uh, Above him each had six wings, with two he covered his face. face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. If we saw these things, these creatures of God, today we might do what John did in Revelation and fall down and try to worship them. These are magnificent creatures, and yet they are worshiping the king. They are worshiping the one who's high and lifted up. Even these sinless creatures, these are not sinful fallen beings. These are These are the angels of God who haven't fallen. Even they, they cover themselves. They cover their face. They cover their feet before the presence of God. And then we get to the the, the center of our passage in verse 3. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy. This is the driving center of everything Isaiah is seeing and hearing and experiencing. What is he saying here? What are the angels saying here? Often we think of holiness as just another attribute of God. He's good. He's kind. He's tender. He's holy. Or, And even particularly, most of the time, we think of holiness just in terms of sinless, as if they're saying, God, you're sinless. You're sinless. uh, You're sinless. But holiness... Biblically, holiness here, while it includes that reality of God being sinless and, um, and righteous, is saying so much more. Um, it's really speaking to the sum total of who God is. R. C. Sproul, theologian R. C. Sproul, says that holy is really a synonym for God. In other words, they're, they're saying here, God, you are. God alone, you are God alone, you are God alone. There is none like you, there's none like you, there's none like you. You are a cut above all. You are totally other and above all. You are incomparable. You are who you are, and there is none like you. That's what they are saying, and that's what they are singing Uh, Mount Everest is not called the Holy Mountain merely because it's the highest, in other words. If Mount Everest was the highest, but it was super easy to climb, it'd be like, oh, it's the highest, but it's easy to climb. There's just, it's not that big of a deal. It's, It's called holy by the locals because there's no other mountain like it. There's no mountain higher. There's no mountain harder to climb. It's just overwhelming and all of its glory and all of its grandeur. It's just a cut above the rest. It's the peak of all peaks, There's none like it, and so they call it holy. And this is repeated, right? They say it three times, holy, 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 because God's greatness is inexhaustible. They they can't say it enough. They don't just say it three times, by the way. Revelation says day and night, they never cease. They never cease day and night to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Isaiah here sees a glimpse of that's tailored for him that won't totally crush him, and he hears of the Lord's incomparable, inexhaustible perfections, greatness, glory, bigness, and height. He's experiencing the one who, when he speaks, the very foundations of the universe shake. The one who is so beautiful, it's crushing uh, to you and me. The one so glorious that when Moses spoke with him, Moses' face started to shine, and he had to put a veil on his face. That is the one that he is experiencing. And, and, and the angels go on, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Um, he's the one who, he, he, he's the Lord of hosts. He commands the heavenly armies and rules everything. Nobody can come against him. Nobody can stand against him. Nobody can touch him and his kingdom, and his glory fills the earth. His presence fills the earth. This morning, uh, we said something at breakfast about, we were talking about America. We we're talking about how big America is to our four and a half-year-olds, and said something like, God is everywhere, or something like that. And Grady said, are there more, are there more, than, are there more than one God? Because I said, God is everywhere. So he's like, is God in those nations? And we were talking about war and all this random stuff. Guys, it was breakfast with four and a half year olds and a two and a half year old. And it was interesting. But I was like, you know, some nations are bad and they try to control people. And Grady was like, is God with those nations? And I was like, oh my word, I wish you were 12 or 27 so we could actually talk about this. I don't know how to explain this. Um, But I said, well, God is everywhere. These, are there more than one God? How is that possible? You know, there's gotta be multiple gods if he's gonna be in China too, you know? Um, I said, no, there's one God. He's everywhere. His presence fills the earth. His glory fills the earth. Now, this is what Isaiah is seeing and experiencing. He is seeing God in this revelation that God is giving him. Now, this this may sound odd for me to say this in this moment, but we crave this. You and I are made for this. We crave it, whether you know it or not. It would be wrong for us to conclude that because Isaiah is experiencing this and his whole life is shaking and he's pronouncing doom on himself, it would be wrong for us to conclude to say, well, then I don't want anything to do with the presence of God. It would be wrong to say, well, then we're not made for the presence of God. We're not made to know God like that. We're not made to see God like that. Um, that that would be the wrong conclusion. Revelation says that believers will for eternity be sheltered in the presence of God. We are made for the presence of God. Um, I'll say it like this. Uh, It's good. It's one thing for a groom to know a lot about his bride soon to walk down the aisle. It's good. It's right to know a lot About her, but isn't it another thing to see her? For the groom to finally see her. It is good and right for us to crave the height of theological knowledge and information from God's Word, and all of it should and does lead us to say, and I want to see him. I want to experience. Experience Him. I want to know His presence. I want to have a profound experience and understanding, uh, personal understanding of His uh, presence. We we crave this, you know. For all that the charismatic, our charismatic brothers and sisters in the church get wrong, and I spent time in the charismatic world, so I feel like I've got the uh, more freedom to pick on them than most, for all that they get wrong, you know, they don't get wrong their honest admission that they just want a profound experience with the presence of God. I mean, don't you want, I mean, wouldn't you say, I'd like to experience what Isaiah is experiencing. For all that they might get wrong, they are not wrong to admit, to say, I just want a profound experience with the presence of God. And so our you reformed world, our reformed family, it's okay to admit and to be honest that you just, I just want a profound experience with the presence of God, with him. Yes, I wanna know all about him and knowing more about him makes me say, and I want to see him and I want to be with him. Let's put it in biblical language. I want to, I want to experience the shelter of his presence and I wanna know it more. You know, It's good and it's right. Uh, we, are, we crave this. Now, um, how do we enjoy it though? Let's let's wrap this up here. How do we enjoy the presence of God when here Isaiah experiences the holy presence of God and it makes him say, woe is me, I'm doomed. If we crave it, if if I want to see God and experience his holiness, uh, but it leads Isaiah to, woe is me, I'm doomed. Um, Terror, how do we enjoy his presence? Verse six. Verse six, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. Remember, Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then God begins to deal directly with the problem. I am guilty and I am sinful. This is seen most clearly because out of the Heart, the mouth speaks, and so God begins to deal directly with his sin, directly with his guilt, directly with the reason that he's pronouncing woe and doom on himself. And he brings a a burning coal and he touches his lips. Dead flesh. Dead flesh. And imagine the smell if that's you. Imagine what you would smell. You'd smell dead flesh. And he said, quote behold this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away your sin atoned for first in this passage isaiah knows himself only to be a guilty sinner in the presence of a holy god and this is necessary don't resist this work of the holy spirit don't resist the work of god to humble you to 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 show you who you really are in our sin and in our guilt. But now, now Isaiah knows that his guilt is gone, his sin is paid for, and he is safe in the presence of God. And he's done absolutely nothing. He didn't change his heart. He didn't change his lips. He didn't do anything. God did everything. Suddenly he is standing on the peak knowing I'm totally safe here. This was my death and my doom a second ago, and now I'm totally safe and secure here because his guilt was taken away. His sin was atoned for. And we see this more clearly in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? God speaks, but instead of fear and hiding, which we would expect, what do we get? Look at what Isaiah says. Then I said, here I am. Send me. First, Isaiah knows that he's guilty in the presence of God, and it's, and it's hopefully he doesn't see me. Woe is me. Hopefully, I get out of this unscathed, and, and he just doesn't notice that I'm here. Here. That's what it first is. Now, guilt is taken away, sin atoned for, safe, and Isaiah's like, God, look over here. Make sure you see me. I'm right here. How amazing. I mean, what an insane, this is the total opposite of fear and hiding. This is like, I'm right here. Lay your eyes on me. I will Uh, I will go. Not only does he feel safe in the presence of God here, he's saying, I will partner with you. I'll join the mission. What do you need? What do you need? What What are you sending me out to do and say, whatever it costs, if it costs me my life, because nobody will listen, I'll go. I'll join the team. I'll partner with you. Just send me. Send me out. Send me out to wherever to say whatever this is, This is life with God made possible through death and doom. First, it is a sense of death, and then Isaiah is brought to life. Something or someone has to die for us to rejoice. There has to be dead flesh for us to be safe and sheltered in the presence of God, rejoicing. When Jesus walked the earth, the Holy One... He is called, and he is, and he, he would show his glory. The disciples would fall down in terror. They would bow down before him. They would say, get away from me. Get away from me. Your presence is crushing me as a sinful man. The greatness and grandeur of Jesus was and is crushing. And he knew that for us to enjoy his presence and to be sheltered in the presence of God, he knew someone had to die. He had to die. He knew... Jesus knew, seated on the throne, his robe filling the temple, he knew in order for them to be sheltered in my presence, I've got to take off my robe and I've got to get off the throne and I've got to come down and I've got to die. Dead flesh, someone has to be doomed. The woe has to come. It has to fall. And Jesus goes where you and I are and were He goes to the lost place. He goes to the unclean place. He goes to the damned cross for the damned. He goes to the place of guilt, and he goes to the place of sin. Though he is sinless and perfect, the Holy One of God, he on the cross is regarded as sin and as a sinner in your place and in my place for us. And he cries out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That's not a far cry from woe is me. I am lost. I am undone. I am doomed on this cross. And he was. He was. So that Isaiah didn't have to be, so that you. Won't have to be so that I won't have to be. In the year that King Uzziah died, a sense of security and safety and future was lost on the nation. But in the year that the the King Jesus died, ultimate security, safety, and future was accomplished for you. In the year that Jesus, the King, died, he was lost and doomed so that you could be found and sheltered in the presence of God. Jesus paid our debt of sin. He removes our guilt to bring us home, to bring us into the presence of God so that you can have now and forevermore what you're made for. And it's called life with God, life in his presence, enjoying him and rejoicing under his blessing because Jesus took the doom for you, died and was buried and on the third day came out with resurrection life and gives it out liberally to unclean people, sinners guilty like you and me for free, and we don't do anything. We just stand there and receive it by faith. We experience this now. Now we experience this. Don't expect an Isaiah 6 experience now. Not yet. But we do have the down payment. We have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, don't we? We have the Holy Spirit. God's presence with us now. Most of your Christian life will feel very ordinary, though. But the day is coming when you will either wake up in the presence of God or Jesus will return. And forevermore, as Revelation says, you will live before the throne of God, sheltered in his presence, all because Jesus lived for you, died for you, and has risen from the grave All right, amen.